John's text this morning is taken from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Father in heaven, my heart's desire now, as we look into your word, is that you would guard me from error and Grant that my spirit would be in tune with yours when you inspired this word so that both the truth is spoken and in a demeanor that is fitting for these realities. Then I pray for every mind and heart here and those listening elsewhere. that there would be a tenderness towards the truth and that you would grant a spiritual taste for the things of God. I pray for those without Christ that they would be moved to see you, Father, through him, by the Spirit, in the Word. And I pray for believers that you would help us to navigate the torturous waters between destruction of hopelessness on the side of perfectionism and the destruction of hopelessness on the side of perversity. And that we would steer a straight course to heaven Lord, make us warriors, I pray, who get up again and again and again when we are knocked down. Teach us about your grace in this matter and about your power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Three weeks ago when we looked at this text, the last time, this is our third message on this text, 
I said that the main thing that, that Paul is doing in verses 14 to 25 of Romans 7 is to defend the law of God against several false inferences, one in particular drawn out from the observation that Christians don't live up to their own standards perfectly. So I imagine, and I don't think it takes a lot of imagination, an objector having walked with Paul through the first six chapters of Romans, not believing what he's saying, in fact, very much resistant to what he's saying, and pointing out to him, now, Paul, you said back in chapter 6, verse 14, that these folks are no longer under the law. And you said in chapter 7, verse 4, these folks are dead to the law. And you said in chapter 7, verse 6, these folks are released from the law. You know what you get, Paul, when you tell people they're not under the law, they're dead to the law, and they're released from the law? You get Romans 7, that's what you get. You get people who are wanting to do what they can't do, and not able to do what they ought to do, and who see themselves as wretched people. That's what you get. You have made the law into disease and death. And what you get is half-baked, carnal, worldly Christians at best. So what you need to do, Paul, to get this thing fixed is to stop dumping on the law and treating it as a disease or as the cause of death. Get people under the law where they belong. Now, to that objection, Paul, I think, is having to fight on three fronts as he writes this. Number one, he believes in the goodness and spirituality of the law with all his heart. So he's fighting on the front of, I am not making the law sin. I am not treating the law as death. I am not treating the law as disease. I love the law of God. The key texts are verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. Verse 16, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 25, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. So that's one front. You can hear him saying, it is not true what you're saying. You're drawing a false inference from my teaching to say that I'm treating the law as sin. I'm treating the law as deadly. I'm treating the law as a disease. That's not what I'm saying. You're misunderstanding and misconstruing. The second front, he says, the explanation for why Christians don't live up to their own standards is not that I have put the law in the wrong place, but that indwelling sin is a mighty power in our lives. Two verses. Verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's where I get the phrase, and others get the phrase, indwelling sin. See the phrase, dwell in me? It's like a, it's like a resident, an ugly, seditious, warring against my soul resident. Verse 20, 
But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. There it is again. Two texts talk about this reality called indwelling sin. So his second front, the first one is to defend the law and to show that the problem is not that I have made the law to be sin. Rather, on the second front, he's defending the reality that there is such a thing as indwelling sin rooted down deep in my life. And I need to put it to death. I need to make war on it. But it's there and it's real. That's the second front. The third front is to defend his own Christian standing. He's a Christian. He wants to defend the fact that he's a Christian. I have a new nature. I have been born again. I have a taste for the things of God. Verse 22 would be one of several verses we could look at for this point. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I love the law of God, he says. I rejoice in the law. But I see a different law in my members, the members of my body. I have been changed. I'm alive to God. I'm alive to the law. I have a spiritual taste now. There's a nature in me that's not just carnal. That's the third thing he wants to say. Now that brings us to the most controversial matter that I pointed out three weeks ago and said I would come back to in order to argue the point that I made there. And the point was this. Is Romans 7, 14 to 25 the pre-Christian Paul? Is he describing his experience before he got saved? Or is it the Christian Paul describing his experience in part as he experiences it now? That's the big issue. And scholars line up on both of those sides. Godly scholars, evangelical scholars, my friends line up on those two sides. And I told you which side I stand on and said I would be back to give you reasons. And here I am. The side where I stand is I believe he's talking about Christian experience. And I want to defend that And I have ten reasons, at least, and I'll only give five of them this morning, God willing, and then the other five later. But first, let me tell you why it matters to me. Because you might be sitting there saying, that's about as uninteresting to me as anything I can imagine. <laughs> Here's the reason I think it should be very interesting to you and crucial to you. As I've watched why people don't come to Christ for their eternal joy and rather choose everlasting destruction and misery, there are several kinds of reasons. The one that I have in mind here is a hopelessness that settles in on the soul that doesn't say the gospel is false. It just says, there's no hope for me. That's all. You can argue till you're blue in the face on the intellectual level with such an objection and say, look, you're probably right. It's a frightening thing, isn't it? 
One of the sources, not the only one, of this hopelessness is an unbiblical perfectionism. That does not provide people with categories to understand their own failure as a Christian. And therefore, when they stumble and fall into a sin or some repeated sinning, they don't have any way to explain what's going on in their lives, and they despair that they are a Christian. And you remember three weeks ago, I pointed to J.I. Packer, who argued and was so thankful for the book on indwelling sin by John Owen, written 350 years ago. He said that he was saved back in the 40s and immediately ushered into a kind of perfectionistic Christianity that believed in a kind of higher life, a second experience Christianity, after which you had this experience, you were above the struggle, walking in triumph, walking in victory, no more battles, and he said, I almost committed suicide. But then I read Owen and Ryle, who helped me understand a more balanced biblical understanding of sin in the believer's life. And some of you asked me where you could get that book. And it's in the sixth volume of the works of John Owen. 150 pages in the middle of that book. And I went online yesterday and found 10 stores where you can get it. All kinds of prices. The problem is you have to be desperate to read it because it's written in almost unintelligible 17th century English. Sorry, the best things have to be dug for. If you rake, you get leaves if you dig you get diamonds and if you got a raking mind you'll settle for leaves if you got a digging mind you get diamonds I commend Owen as a good mine now to further put you off here's the title the nature, power, deceit, and prevalency of the remainders of indwelling sin in believers, together with the ways of its working and means of prevention, opened, evinced, and applied, with a resolution of sundry cases of conscience thereunto appertaining. <laughs> I don't expect anybody to go looking for this book now. But I promise you that if you read those 150 pages, you probably will not shoot yourself because of your remaining imperfection. You will be set on a course to know how to do battle with sin and understand your failures that saved J.I. Packer's life and I believe will save many. So my aim this morning is to argue that this passage is about that. Namely, Christian experience in its moments of failure. That's what I want to argue. This text is about that and providing you with categories for understanding it. Now, one more qualification before I get into my five arguments. 
I stressed three weeks ago, I don't want to stress as I begin now, please, please, please don't misunderstand me as saying this text teaches make peace with sin. Pastor John said, everybody's going to sin, and so relax, make peace with sin, it's no big deal. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I would say exactly the opposite. This text is teaching, make war with sin. Make war with sin. What you read here is about a man who is on the war path against his sin. And now he's got a spiritual nature that enables him to identify for what it really is, as horrid as it is. And he hates it. The evidence of being a Christian is not that there are no tactical defeats in the war, but that you keep fighting till the promised victory is given. That's the evidence of being a Christian. So, argument number one. I got five. Number one, they're simple. You can see them yourself. I'll show them to you. It just looks like Paul is talking about himself now as a Christian because he says I, me, or my 40 times in 15 verses. And he talks in the present tense instead of the past tense. So you read things like I am of the flesh. What I am doing I do not understand. I do the very thing I don't want to do. I find the principle that evil is present with me. For I joyfully concur with the law of God. With my mind, I am am serving the law of God. Those sound like now. Those sound like present experience. So I know that's kind of a simplistic, but I'm a pretty simple person. At least at first, I'm going to say, it's just going to take a sophisticated and compelling argument to get me over the obvious here. That this looks like Paul describing himself. And frankly, I've read and read and read for 25, 30 years. I used to debate with a good friend of mine who teaches at another seminary now at Bethel. And these are friendly debates, class after class on Romans. So this is not a new thing for me. I've read many commentaries on this and I've collected all the arguments I can find and have written for myself Responses to them all. And so some of my arguments are responses to others. And I've not been persuaded that anything overcomes that simple observation. Argument number two. He speaks about the law of God in a way that I think only a Christian would speak about it. And I'm not, I don't have in my mind here mainly verse 16, which says the law is good. Or mainly verse 14, that says the law is spiritual. I have mainly in mind verse 22. Where it says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And I see that word, that phrase, inner man. And it rings bells from the other places where Paul uses it about Christians being strengthened in the inner man. What I hear in this phrase is, I have been awakened in my inner man. I have now been given a spiritual taste for things of God. I now see the law for what it was really designed for, namely to lead people into a life of love. And I love it. I, I joy in it. That doesn't sound like an unbeliever to me. And it doesn't sound like a Christian interpretation of an unbeliever. 
And it doesn't sound like a Pharisee who might have said he loves the law. But Paul would have to say from his perspective is a false, carnal, unbelieving joy. That's not what this sounds like when Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God. I don't think he's describing a Pharisaic, hypocritical love and joy in the law of God. That's my argument number two. Argument number three. Is this divided man who's tortured at some point in his life and saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, I don't do what I want and I do what I don't want. Is that what Paul's experience was before he was a Christian? Is there any way to know? Well, there is. Because there are at least two passages, one in Galatians and one in Ephesians, where we know Paul is talking about his pre-Christian experience, and we can read them to see how he saw himself. So let me read them to you. Galatians 1.13, Paul says, For you know you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Now we know he's talking about his pre-Christian experience. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism, advancing in Judaism, beyond many of my contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's Paul's description before he was a Christian. I was unwaveringly zealous for the law and for the traditions. You don't get an impression reading that, that this man was some days failing and some days succeeding and hating himself when he failed and loving himself when he didn't. That is not the picture you get of the pre-Christian Paul out of his own mouth. There's an even more important one. Philippians chapter 3 verses 4 to 6 goes like this. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. She's cataloging all the things he could boast in if he were a mind to. The nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So if you ask Paul, tell us about your pre-Christian life, he says, blameless from the perspective that I had then and in a legalistic way, powerfully blameless. He didn't say, wow, before I was a Christian, I was absolutely tormented. Some days I kept the law, some days I broke the law. I was crying out, wretched man that I am, over and over again before I became a Christian. That is not the way he describes himself. But you know what? When you're born again and a new nature, a spiritual nature is created in your heart and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within, the battle begins. The battle begins begins. Now you might say, you know some unbelievers who battle, but you know what unbelievers battle with? Not sin. The consequences of sin. Unbelievers love sin with no apology. They hate the consequences of sin. Hangovers, 
bad drug, downers, being caught and sent to jail for a few weeks or something for shoplifting, divorce, and it's horrible pain, being too overweight. I mean, yeah, yeah, unbelievers have conflicts within, but they love sin and just hate pain. Whereas, when you're born again, and a new nature is given you, so that you have a spiritual taste for God, and His glory, and His way, what pains you first is not the consequences of sin, but the dishonor that sin brings upon your God, and the undoing of your own humanity in the image of God. And then, consequences. Unbelievers, they don't, they don't get bent out of shape because God is dishonored. They don't get bent out of shape because the image of God in their lives is being defiled. They just don't like the misery that comes with sin. Escaping misery saves nobody. It puts you on the right path towards the somebody who can save you. But escaping hell And hangovers never saved anybody. Cleaving to Jesus, loving Jesus, loving the law, delighting in spiritual reality. That is the mark of salvation, not fear of hell. Everybody who has any sense fears fire. You don't have to be born again to fear hell. So, third argument. He talks about law himself in a way here as divided, which he didn't talk about before he was a Christian. When he got saved, the battle began. Argument number four. He talks about himself now as a Christian in a way that I don't think he could if he were describing a non-Christian. I'm thinking mainly of verse 18. You look and you assess. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good. Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Now, notice two things here. First, notice the devastating self-assessment. Nothing good dwells in me. Is that the way Paul talked before he was a Christian? Advancing beyond all my contemporaries, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless with the righteousness that is in the law. Does that sound like nothing good dwells in me? No, no. That sounds like the way a person talks who has been by grace alone wakened to the fact that he was dead in trespasses and sins and a slave to sin and hopeless and had nothing to commend himself to God and suddenly he's been enabled to see grace and a Christ dying for him and he's been drawn out to believe and now he looks back on himself and what he was and he says, zero commended me to God. Nothing. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a believer talking except... For an objection, right? 
Can a believer really say that? There is nothing good in me. No good in me. What about Christ? What about the Holy Spirit? What about the new nature? Which is why he adds the last phrase. Which he would never add if he were describing an unbeliever. I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he qualifies it because of precisely knowing Christ is in me. The spirit is in me. The new nature is in me. And so he qualifies saying that is in my flesh. Now flesh in Paul's terminology does not mean skin. It means human nature. What I am simply owing to my first birth. Jesus said, John 3, chapter 3, verse 6, I think, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, period. You must be born again if you would have spirit within you. We are flesh until we are born again. And when we are born again, the Holy Spirit is within us. Christ is within us. A new creature is being formed within us. So you can't say if you're a Christian, absolutely, there is no good in me at all. You must say, Christ is in me. The Spirit is in me. A new nature is being formed in me. But you still say, and now you feel with unbelievable force. There is in me that is apart from those gifts, no good thing. Left to myself, left to me as I was born, in my personality, in my nurture, up to the day I was quickened by the Holy Spirit and made a Christian, what is in me, there is no good thing. Paul would never, ever describe an unbeliever by saying, there is no good thing in him that is in his flesh. He would simply say, there is only flesh in the unbeliever. There is no good thing, period. He wouldn't qualify it and say, that is in the flesh, as though there were another thing beside flesh, which there isn't. Final argument, number five. This is just a story from the life of a great saint, one of the greatest, who was filled with the Holy Spirit and failed repeatedly. His name is Peter, the Apostle. And you know what I'm thinking about first, don't you? But now get the setting. For that Thursday night before Jesus was killed, when he denied the Lord three times. Get the setting. This man has been with Jesus three years, chosen by Jesus. One day, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And Peter, loudmouth, boisterous, impulsive Peter, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responded, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you're a rock. Petros, I'm going to build a church on you and your apostolic ministry. And I have 
enjoyed watching the Father open your heart, give you a spiritual nature, enable you to recognize my true divinity and sonship. That's the Peter we're talking about, who comes to that night when the little slave girl says, you're one of them. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. She comes again. You're one of those. I saw you out there. I tell you, I don't know what you're talking about. I am not one of them. A third time. You're one of them. And he swears. By God. I'm not one of them. Then Jesus looks at him. You ever been looked at like that? I have. And he wept and wept and wept. And I ask you, you test, which verse from this text came out of his mouth? Verse 24 came out of his mouth. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this cowardly nature of mine, this body of death? But somebody's going to say, somebody from the higher life movement, somebody from the perfectionistic crowd is going to say, ah, that was before Pentecost. You don't have a spirit-filled person there. After Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, then you can have triumph. That sort of thing won't grip you. Well, I know from the book of Acts, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Four times, I think it says. He was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. And he spoke the Word of God with boldness. And the anointing of God was upon him. And he was riding high on the crest of the wave of godliness and courage. And God used him mightily to bring thousands to himself. And then he went up to Antioch. Galatians chapter 2. Open your Bible. You're, if you're at Romans, just flip over. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. Let's close with this glimpse of Peter to show that what is being described here in Romans 7, 14 to 25 is not a pre-Christian and not a pre-filled Experience. It plagues the greatest Christians till the day they die. Verse 12, here's the situation. Chapter 2 of Galatians. Peter, in the glorious freedom that he has as a Jewish person to no longer keep the dietary restrictions, is eating with Gentiles, unclean, uncircumcised gloriously justified and sanctified Gentiles and probably eating ham and catfish. <laughs> and then come the Judaizers, the folks from James. I don't think James approved of these folks. But they came with their power and their prestige and their legal bent. 
And we get the description of what happened here now in verse 12. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing dread word, dread word. The party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, another dread word, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, notice a couple of things. First of all, notice who this is. This is Peter and this is Barnabas. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, these are heroes. These are not low-level Christians. These are heroes in Luke's eyes. Peter the mighty preaching. He's the triumphant one up until Paul takes over in chapter 13, as it were. And Barnabas is kind of a, a glorious Behind-the-scenes saint, everything he touches turns to gold for Jesus. The great encourager, the rock that you send when there's disputes in the church to try to pull people together. That's who we're talking about here. Peter and Barnabas. And then the second thing to notice is these dreadful words. Fearing the party of the circumcision... And even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? In this case, hypocrisy is a behavior that tells a lie. It's lying. It's deceiving. It's saying to the nice, squeaky clean legalist from Jerusalem, I don't do that. I don't eat with Gentiles. That's a lie. He's lying. He's putting up a front. Hypocrisy is a lie. Which is why I said three weeks ago that one of the benefits of this text is to get hypocrisy out of the church. To help people stop putting on those pasty smiles and posing and making in your small group like, you don't have any problems. You're a Christian. You don't stumble. You don't fail. Let's just get that out of our lives. And Peter's an example of of it here. And then that awful word fearing. And you know why that word fearing is so powerful here? Because it's the same sin from the night when he betrayed or denied Jesus. Now get this. Get this, all you strugglers after 25 years with the same sin. Get this, would you? Everybody in this room has a personality. Some of which is really delightful and some of which is just disgusting. Everybody's got parts of your personality that are a pain to you and others. Some of those things are sinful, some of them are neutral. But we've all got them. We are bent. Some of us are bent genetically. Some of us are bent hormonally. Some of us are bent because of dysfunctional past families. Some of us are bent because of incredible tragedies and crises we've been through. Everybody in this person, in this room, I mean, is bent toward behaviors that you wish weren't there. 
Now, Peter, at the beginning, three years into his Christian life, is a coward. See, in his personality, he's, he's kind of an up-and-down kind of guy. He just says, who am I? You're the Christ. They'll all deny you. I won't deny you. Bring them on. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. What is this? This is just cowardice. Cropping up the old Peter. Now the years go by. The years go by. He preaches mightily in the book of Acts. Goes up to Antioch. Embraces his Christian freedom to eat with Gentiles. And then some of his old buddies come. And he caves. With the old, it's, a, it's not a new sin. It's like, okay, if I had new sins to struggle with every decade or so, I could feel like I'm knocking the old ones off. I'm going to deal with the new ones. Good. But here's the old one. And it's still there. Fear. Fear. It's just written right into him. It's that indwelling sense that he's talking about, that Paul is talking about in Romans Chapter 7. And I don't doubt that when Paul rebuked him, and he did to his face, because he said, your behavior is not only hypocritical, it's not only fearful, but it is out of step with the gospel, and you are compromising the very doctrines of justification by faith here. And he, he accused him to his face. Now, we know from the way Paul describes Peter later on in 1 Corinthians that they patched it up. And I don't doubt that that night... He had another one of those, oh, wretched man that I am, nights. And that's all I'm arguing for. I'm not saying there's no victory in the Christian life. Let me end on that note. I'm not saying that. I'm saying chapter 6 of Romans is written to show you that you will win the war. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. You will triumph in the end. Chapter 7 is written to say... In the war that you're going to win, there will be tactical defeats. And my aim in this sermon is to help you understand yourself so that you do not fall into the hopelessness of unbiblical perfectionism. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, would you teach us right now how to cry out? in love to the law and hatred of sin. Would you put in everyone's heart in this room, Lord, a love for the law, a love for Christ? Would you cause people to know that they have a righteousness if they will have it, if they will embrace it by faith right now and say, I want that and I put my faith in it. They can have a righteousness that is perfect, namely Christ's righteousness, so that their ups and downs are not the measure by which they will be measured for justification, but rather Christ's righteousness is And then would you teach us, Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit. We have promises of future grace. We have a treasure chest of holy joy from Jesus. And that these things are adequate to fight the fight of faith until the last breath. And there will be fight on our deathbed. So thank you, Lord. For Christ, thank you for the promises of perseverance. Thank you that we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus the righteous. Thank you that you've promised if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. And will forgive your sins. Now, Lord, as we absorb these things, 
I ask that you would make them real to us. On through the afternoon as people ponder, I pray that no one would make peace with sin because of what they've heard here, but feel new resolves to make war on the sin in their lives. Father, dismiss us now with your blessing, I pray, and grant us the fullness of your Spirit and all the triumphs that a justified sinner can have in this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.